Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. What is up, everybody? I am super excited. Today, we have a very, very special guest. Uh, it's my former mentor and professor. He literally taught me everything I know. Everything you hear on this podcast is a dumbed-down version of what he says, or he had told me at one point. Uh, his name is Dr. John Kincaid. Dr. Kincaid, how's it going? Chase, good to be with you. Yeah, so it's awesome. I mean, this is just ecstatic. Uh, I, you know, I'm a wannabe uh, biblical theologian, but we have an actual biblical oh, theologian here. Well, which no, no, no. <laughs> we kind of all are. We're all wannabes in one sense. You never get to the end of it. So. That's true. It's we're funny. lifelong learners. Yeah. All of us are lifelong learners. It's yeah. funny. My, uh, I, my mom actually just finished her undergrad in theology. She went back to school and got her undergrad in theology. And, um, she, she was all excited and stuff. And I was talking with her and I was like, yeah, mom, like when you finish your undergrad, you get pretty excited and you learn a lot. Then you do your master's. And after that, you realize you don't know anything and it's awful. Exactly. <laughs> At first it's awful, but then it's liberating because then it's a lifetime of continuing to learn. And, you know, if someone thinks even with a PhD that they've really gotten to the bottom of either scripture or the history of the church's reading of scripture, um, I think that they need to re-examine that because we've only scratched the surface in this lifetime. And as long as we can look at that positively and say, look, it's always a journey, then we can embrace it with liberation and say, there's always something fresh to discover. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, so uh, as always, you know, Dr. Kinkett, I was telling you, we start with a Greek word of the day. So uh, right. do you got a Greek word for us today? Yeah, I do. How about the, the Greek word karis? Um, so what, which what does that mean? transliterated into English, C-H-A-R-I-S, okay. which means grace or gift. So, um, so the so Greek when, word karis, that, is, that, that, is, that pre, is that where the word karitas in Latin then comes from then? No, karitas in Latin... Um, it means love, whereas in uh, the, the Latin equivalent uh, would be gratia. Ah. So it's, and it's interesting, it, it is an absolutely central word, obviously, uh, for the Apostle Paul, as well as for much of the New Testament, in the importance of charis in order to become the kind of people who live faithfully uh, in the new covenant people of God, mm. to be like Jesus of Nazareth. And it actually, it's a gift that comes in and through him. That is the gift of grace. Charis is about Jesus himself, both what he gives to us and the gift itself makes us like him. So mm. uh, it's hard to, I, I think it's one of those words in the New Testament that, that you actually can't overestimate its significance. Mm, that's fascinating. So, so that brings us to uh, then um, your book that you co-authored with uh, Dr. Brent Peachy, Dr. Michael Barber, who's another prof uh, former professor of mine. So you co-authored this book, uh, Paul, A New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology. So first of all, congratulations. Yeah. I've read thank the book. You. It is fan fantastic. I mean, really, it's, oh, I, I, I felt, yeah. I felt like while I was reading it, I was back in class, which is kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You've probably heard a lot of this stuff before. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but it was awesome. It's, I mean, it's just great to have it like in my hands, you know, cause it's, you know, when you, when you learn something in class, it doesn't really matter how good of notes you take, right. You, you don't, you can't remember it all, right. You can't, exactly. you can't, you can't contain it all. I remember actually a conversation we had way back in the day and it, I think we were sitting in your office and, you know, 
your office you had your li- the lined with books, right? Books everywhere. And he's like, yeah. and you, you just told me, he's like, you know, why do you think I have all these books? It's because, I mean, I can't just like off the cuff remember every single thing I've ever read or like heard. Like you have the books right. to like reference to. So your book right. is, I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, well, it was, it was a real pleasure to work with Brant and uh, Michael Barber. I mean, they're both close friends as well as uh, excellent young Catholic biblical scholars. And, um, you know, I feel like I, I certainly benefited not simply from their expertise, but from their friendship. And it was truly a collaborative effort. So by the end of it, uh, we all felt like each of us made our, our real contribution, but it was genuinely uh, a work of friendship. That, and I saw, I see that the forward is from the Michael Gorman. I mean, how excited know, were you yeah, for that? that? Very. Yeah, we were honored. I mean, that was one of our target goals. I mean, Michael, you know, when I, I taught you, you know, in, in class, I typically, one of my go-to textbooks uh, is Michael Gorman's introduction to the Pauline Corpus. So I've long been an admirer of Michael Gorman and um, we sent him the book and uh, I've been friends with him for a while, but I sent him the book and, and said, you know, what do you think? And we would be honored if you would uh, write the foreword. Uh, or at least endorse it. And he loved the book and, and wrote us, you know, uh, a forward that all three of us were almost embarrassed. It was so nice. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, that was, that was one of the crowning parts we were all touched by because I mean, Dr. Corman's work really has influenced us. Um, and his work on Paul, he reads Paul, uh, very insightfully and in a way that I think lots of Christians of all stripes, both Catholics and Protestants can benefit from. So I think that's one thing for, for our listeners to, to keep in mind. They may not know. So Michael Gorman, he's a Methodist theologian, correct? He's not Catholic. He is not. Yeah. So, but it's funny, it's but, funny cause he, he, but he, he teaches at a Catholic school and he has the Raymond Brown chair of, of new Testament, uh, as well as I think in theology. I, I don't know the, let me get the exact title. I have, sure. I have my book sitting here on the, let me just make sure I get it right. Cause yeah, so he's the Raymond Brown Professor of Biblical Studies and Theology. So, so I think, and I, and I think that's important for Catholics to hear because you know, you know, I think a lot of Catholics are really in, still intimidated by Paul. I think they yeah. they they read Paul and they're like, "Dude, I have no idea what you're talking about." But then they they talk to their uh, non-Catholic friends who maybe study Scripture, and then and they're quoting Paul left and right. They're very comfortable, uh, you know, w- with Paul. And I think it's important for us as Catholics to know one that there are non-Catholics who. I mean, their Pauline soteriology is is really, really close, if not on par with, yes. with what the Catholic Church teaches, right? Correct, correct. Gorman would certainly be one of them. I mean, Gorman reads Paul in a way that is very consistent with uh, what you might call broadly the capital T tradition. I mean, he, um, you know, many scholars who work in New Testament highlight that Gorman's work, particularly in Paul, has echoes to Irenaeus and echoes mm. to other early interpreters. So um, I think Gorman's work is a kind of, you can hear almost the echoes of early patristic readings of Paul ruminating in the background as, as he does it. And in fact, at times he, he owns it explicitly uh, because he talks about the role of, of deification in Paul's account of salvation. So you know, Gorman is a very important reader uh, of Paul and he, and he's fair. I mean, he wants to follow the evidence wherever it goes. Right. Um, and sometimes he read that means he reads Paul better than some Catholics. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, I so, think too, yeah. I, I think you, you kind of, you, you, you said the word that I think it, that's the biggest, it's the, the idea of deification. Right. Um, and this sure. is, this is something that, 
Um, I don't, it's not a very commonplace term, uh, amongst most non-academics, especially in the Catholic world. Sure. Um, you know, sure. if I went up to, uh, most of the parishioners here at the parish that I work for and say, Hey, let's talk about deification. They're gonna look at me like, what the heck are you talking about? Um, yeah, but, yeah. but that's kind of, you know, that's where the argument, the crux of the argument, a lot of the lies between, um, Catholics and a lot of non-Catholics is this idea of is, is deification, like, is that the actual process, right? I mean, yeah. is, is yeah. that what happens? So uh, just in a nutshell, I guess you want to just touch on deification and like what we mean by that term? Sure. And then, I'll, let me do that and then I can pivot it into Paul. So I would say in general, what we mean is not becoming God, although, you know, you could just put deification or theosis is the, the Greek version. It would sound like you're becoming God. You don't become God as God is, but by back to grace where we started, by grace, you become like God and share in his divine life, participate in the divine nature. You don't become divine nature, you be, you're able to participate in it. And ultimately, that's all about conformity to the divine humanity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is both God and man fully, and in his humanity, he is God. And so the way we grow as believers in our salvation is to become more like Jesus of Nazareth. And if he's God, it follows then, right, that you could say it's deification. And so what Gorman has shown, and then what we argue in the book, and, and a number of Pauline scholars are really going this direction, is that Paul's account of salvation can properly be called deification because the overarching rationale for what Paul means for salvation for those who are in the New Covenant is to become like Jesus Christ, right? is to be conformed to his image. In one of the climactic passages in, in Romans, at least earlier in the letter in Romans 8, Paul says the whole purpose of predestination is to be conformed to the image of the Son. Mm. Yeah, and for, <laughs> so the and for, mystery of God's plan, that's right, in Romans 8, yeah. Right. Romans 8, 29 and 30 says, those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed mm. to the image of the Son. Yeah. So you can get into all these debates about predestination and how it works, but there's a first and most important point and that is the purpose of predestination for Paul is to be conformed mm. to Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's a starting point. And that's very hard not to be called deification, right? I mean, yeah. if Jesus is divine, in it, you know, that he is a divine human, right? Now, he has two natures, but he's one person, and he's a divine human. And if we're conformed to his divine humanity— then we are deified, but we don't become God. Yeah. And this is when, you know, Catholic dogma really helps us to read scripture properly in the sense That's that, right. in the sense that, okay, so we know as Catholics that, you know, uh, Pelagianism and Calvinism are out of the question, right? So kind right. of, to, you know, you know, referencing, you know, I'm not, we're not going to get into predestination here. That's a, that's a different podcast right, right. for a different day. But, but we know that conformity yeah. is the goal. Cruciformity, in, in, in Gorman's own words, right? Cruciformity, uh, being conformed to, to Christ yeah. on the cross, right? Um, and we know that it's, it's a yeah. gift of grace. It's pure gift. We don't, we can't earn it. We can't work for it. Yet at the same time, we know we cooperate with that's grace, correct. right? That's um, right. So pivoting uh, to your to the book here, um, so Paul, a new covenant Jew. So I mean, the first thing you guys address is you know what kind of a, of a Jew was Paul, um, and That's I think right. this isn't a question that I don't I don't think most people even know to ask this question, right? I don't sure, I don't think yeah. I don't think this is a thing that they think of. I think a lot of uh, well-intentioned Catholics and Christians uh, in, in today's world, when they read scripture, they're reading into Paul as if like they're, they're assuming Paul was a devout Catholic or Paul was a devout 
you know, uh, Calvinist evangelical. or yeah, evangelical yeah, exactly, or right. whatever. Um, right. but, it, right. but it is really, and this is, you know, when we can use the tools of the historical critical method, but through the lens of faith, like Ratzinger does that method C approach, you know? That's right. Um, and so in, in your book, you, you talk about, you know, there's, there's four kind of major interpretive options or there's three major interpretive options, but you guys propose the fourth one. So the first one That's being right. a former Jew. So Paul was a former Jew. Uh, Paul was an eschatological, eschatological Jew or that Paul was a Torah observant Jew. Uh, and then, but you, you guys argue that he's actually a new covenant Jew. So I, I would love to spend some time on just on those three major approaches to Paul and why the new covenant Jew is kind of the best option. Sure. So very briefly, the former Jew means that when Paul encounters Jesus of Nazareth on the road to Damascus, he leaves Judaism mm. and becomes a Christian. And of course, there's, and what we say for each of the three views, there's some truth to it and some problem, right? So the truth is, of course, right? When he encounters Jesus of Nazareth alive on the road to Damascus, he can no longer remain the kind of Jew that he was. But to say that he renounced Judaism, right, would be going too far. Now, of course, the scholars that hold the former Jew aren't saying he's simply speaking renouncing Judaism, but they are really emphasizing the discontinuity, right? Like mm. that Paul is converted to a different religion almost, right? Yeah. And and so the emphasis is on the discontinuity between Paul before conversion and after. And again, there's plenty of truth to it, but the question is, um, would it really be fully accurate or precise to say that he's no longer a Jew? Um, clearly, Paul still identifies as one, and ethnically as one, and you see even in the book of Acts that you know he wants to make it to Jerusalem for Pentecost, that he takes a Nazarite vow. So you know there are aspects where he's still practicing elements, not just obviously he's still ethnically Jewish, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, but mm-hmm. he's, um, he's still holds in a certain respect, right, his Jewish heritage without saying, I disavow it. Now, again, to be clear, I'm not saying the scholars and the former Jew would say that he disavows it, but the emphasis on is how radically different it is now. Sure. And, and so and, I'm and sure what we want to say is there's a lot of truth. We want to say there's a lot of truth to that, but it doesn't really fully capture it. So right? are, are they pointing um, to mostly like the, you know, basically because Paul, you know, eats whatever he wants. He talks about in Romans, you know, right. or, or with the weak, I became weak, strong, strong, all that stuff. Um, and, right. and then the whole, you know, argument against circumcision. And so they're, they're, because they're pointing to the fact that because Paul is throwing out all the ceremonial law, he therefore that the that for them, the syllogism is therefore he is no longer Jew. Right. Well, they would say at least he's no longer, um, following the Torah as such, which is true. Um, in as much as, that he seems that this is the current way he's going to live. That is following kosher laws and dietary regulations as well as sacrificial code. What you just said is that Paul says, well, you know, you know, that's no longer binding. I'm not bound by it, which mm-hmm. would be scandalous, right, to many of his fellow Jews. So that's true. And they're right to emphasize that. The question is, right, is it um, no longer in the sense uh, something that has an abiding significance for Paul. I think most of the former Jew would say, yeah, it's, it's significant, but the emphasis is really on former, right? Mm. It's in the past. Sure. Right? And that doesn't fully square with the evidence, right? And many scholars point to the, you know, the, the ongoing Jewishness of Paul, mm. right? And that leads to the eschatological. That is, the eschatological view is more able to account for the ongoing Jewishness of Paul. 
Mm. But what they want to say is there's a new age, right? Sure. So the, the long-awaited promises of God have indeed dawned, right? And so with the resurrection of Jesus, there's a new creation. It hasn't been fully completed, but it's begun. So that changes things in relationship to the way Paul expresses his Judaism. And again, we say, yeah, that's right, right? However, it doesn't seem to fully capture it analogous to the way the former Judaism fully captured it. That is, um, you know, what does that mean that Paul is an eschatological Jew? We have to be a bit more specific, right? That is, what different part of where we go in our view is what difference does being new covenant make, right? Mm. And how does that re, how does the new covenant further specify what it means to be an eschatological Jew, including right what Paul does and doesn't continue to do in relationship to Judaism, right? Because an eschatological Jew position, you know, can he still be under the law? Is he still fully a Torah observant Jew? Many in the eschatological Jew camp um, don't fully answer that question, right? Mm. They kind of say, well, it's just the new age is done. It's no longer that important. But nonetheless, they might say, no, you know, he may still practice aspects. So the question of Paul's ongoing Torah observance isn't fully answered simply by saying he's an ethological Jew. Now, right. that leads to the third one. There's another view, right, that says, no, you know, Paul remained fully Torah observant. Um, and there's many reasons for, that they suggest this, and as much as, like I already mentioned, you know, Paul's still observing aspects. Of, you know, it, it, they don't do, draw a lot on the Book of Acts, but you can see in the Book of Acts he's he's doing certain things. And you know, Paul says, "I became a Jew to a Jew," right? And mm-hmm. you know, the, he, there are things that, as an ethnic Jew, Paul can continue to do and embrace as part of his heritage. And he, he goes on to say, you know, circumcision is, is, is of significant value, right? Yeah. Um, the promises and calling uh, to Israel are irrevocable, as he says uh, in, in Romans 9 through 11. So the point is, is that Paul, and then they'll also point that Paul identifies, you know, uh, Hebrew of Hebrews, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so now the challenge with that is the things you said earlier, but then he turns around and says at the same time, right? Uh, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but a new creation. I'm not under the Torah, which would be kind of a scandalous statement. Um, So which is it, Paul, right? I mean, are you still practicing or not? Because part of what the new, the Torah observant Jew position will say is when Paul is so strong in saying, look, you are not to be circumcised. You're not to come under the law or it becomes, you know, almost a curse. He's speaking to Gentiles. Mm. He's not, He's not directing that to Jews, right? And so now Gentiles are brought to Jesus as their Savior, and because of that, they're not to enter the Mosaic Law, because that's for Jews. Interesting. So they're really making a distinction there between ethnic and you know, ethnic Jews and Gentiles basically, but they're almost Mm -hmm. that would that would their view would necessitate then almost like two different like cults, right? right? I mean, they would it would necessitate two different ways. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Which doesn't really make sense. Well, and see, that leads us to our position, right, where we say, well, Paul's fully Jewish, he, yet at the same time, he doesn't practice his Judaism as he used to. Mm. And, and it is eschatological. So what is it? And we suggest, well, how does he talk about it? And what he says in 2 Corinthians 3 is that he's a minister of the new covenant, which then is rooted fully in the faith of Israel, that is, promised particularly in Jeremiah, but also alluded to in different ways in Isaiah and Ezekiel, as 
in that eschatological age, there'll be a new covenant. And in that new covenant, a number of things will happen. That in that, Paul is saying those things that were promised, a new covenant where the law is written on the heart, right? Where now all of Israel will be reunited. Where that means the north and the south, all of the lost tribes come back to Israel. Um, that in that process, right, that there'll be a renewed and redeemed new covenant people of God that will also include not just Jews, but Gentiles. Yeah. And that has happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so because of that, that is now the covenant he's under as a Jew. Mm. But that was promised to Jews. And in that covenant, Jew and Gentile are one. Right. So there there's there's not, as you mentioned, the two part plan. Right. Um, Between Jew and Gentile, that wall is broken down, but it is a fully Jewish plan. Right. right? Because it was prophesied all along. Yeah. Well, you think about it it makes me think about, you know, all the analogies that Paul uses, namely, you know, in Ephesians, the two pillars, Christ being the cornerstone, but also in Romans, the the olive tree, you know, the wild branch that was grafted onto the one tree. Yeah. Well, right. So that, that mean, if you look at any of these anal- analogies of Paul, the, the two different approaches or cults, whatever you want to call them, it just doesn't, wouldn't, doesn't work. Wouldn't work. Yeah, the, yeah. So we make a big deal out of the olive tree in our chapter. And when Paul says, all Israel will be saved, well, what does that mean? Yeah. And we argue that all Israel there, he means all of the elect, like as it were, representatives from all of the lost 12 tribes. Now, the challenge with that is what? Well, the northern tribes in the story have fully assimilated with the Gentiles, right? I mean, since the northern conquest in roughly 722 BC, the northern tribes of Israel have Gentilized. I mean, they're they're diaspora, they're not just diaspora Jews, they're diaspora Israelites. They're everywhere, Mm -hmm. right? And the the so-called lost tribes, right? We know that Jews know, you know, that Judah and Benjamin, they kind of know where those tribes are, that they're still in, you know, they came, they are the ones who are typically associated with the area of Judea, right, in, in Canaan, and, you know, were sent out in the Babylonian exile and came back. But the northern tribes, where are they, right? And part of our argument is God had always promised in the New Covenant to go get Right and reunite the north and the south. So if Paul is going to go out and be a minister, right, to the Gentiles, if he goes out and gets the Gentiles, he's also bringing back in the lost tribes. Mm-hmm. Or you could put it differently, right, in God keeping his new covenant promise to go and get all of the lost tribes and reunite them. He's also going to bring Gentiles with them. Yeah. This, and this and this almost reminds me of uh, kinship by covenant to a certain extent too, right? Where because I think a lot of people are confused when they read the Old Testament and then go to the New Testament. They're like, how do these two compute, right? I mean, you have tons of heresies, obviously talking about this as well. But it makes me think of uh, Scott Hahn's argument, namely how um, everything post Ten Commandments um, after after the worship of the golden calf was a. Uh, what do you call it? Scaffolding, added. right? This, it's a scaffolding to to rebuild and add to the original covenant plan, and therefore the new covenant is, is Christ being like this. This building is finished. Let's take the scaffolding off, namely all these ceremonial laws that were designed to keep you away from the Gentiles and keep you towards true worship of the true God. Right now, let's take all this down, and this is the proper new covenant form of worship. That's true, and but I would build on what Scott says there and say this, for Paul, it's not even just back to the Ten Commandments. And the reason being is that 
and this gets back to where we started with the car as the term of the day. You can't do what the Ten Commandments says through your own efforts apart from grace. Hmm. So Paul is really clear, right, that yes, those were added, right? But even the Ten Commandments, what was meant to bring life to him, he says in Romans 7, brought death, right? Why? Well, he gives you the argument in Romans 5. In Adam all died. Hmm. That is, the human race is unable to fully obey God, truly obey God, because of ultimately the effects of sin. And Israel was kind of a new Adam, was indeed his people, given the Ten Commandments, as you mentioned. But they have a spiritual incapacity, as we all do, to obey God apart from grace. So even as good as that initial Mosaic covenant is with the giving of the law, Israel can't do it. Mm. apart from grace. So what the new covenant brings with the law being on the heart is the capacity to do it. And that's precisely what grace is. Augustine, it's interesting, people say this about Aquinas, it's equally true about Augustine. They were way ahead of their time, right? And Augustine, in spirit in the letter, says, outlines this kind of argument in a very beautiful way. And he says, here's one summary for how this works. The law was given so grace might be sought. Grace was given so the law might be kept, right? So the the need for grace to obey, not because the law is bad, but because we are apart from grace. And this brings us back to 2 Corinthians 3, which is a huge part of our book, hence Paul and New Covenant Jew. Paul says the New Covenant is so much greater than the Mosaic, and the reason being, as good as the Mosaic was, it comes with glory on Mount Sinai, it's written only on tablets of stone. Mm. It's merely extrinsic. It's merely exterior. The new covenant is written on tablets of human hearts. So now you can actually, given the empowerment, to obey. And that glory is surpassing so that beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We're actually... You know, the Greek is rooted from metamorphosis, metamorphio. You're being transformed into the image of Christ himself. So we need something interior. The law is not bad, right? It's just merely extrinsic. What we need is a remedy that gets to the heart of things. And so we argue that then Paul's account of salvation is about conformity to Christ, and his account of justification is about cardiac righteousness, that our hearts have to become right so that we can stand at the last judgment and so that we're in right relationship to God. And what would you expect in the new covenant is nothing less, right? Because Jeremiah promised in the new covenant that it won't be like the one at Sinai. The one at Sinai, well, well there, we were saying nothing wrong with it. Well, there wasn't nothing, anything wrong with it. it. It was a medicine that was insufficient to the patient, right? It's a medicine. But it needed more, to, and the problem is on our side. So basically what Jeremiah says is it won't be like that one, meaning at Sinai, because this one will be written on tablets of human hearts. So, the, so for Paul then, I mean, it's, it's, it's cruciformity, it's deification, it's, it's literally God the Father loving us so much that he sent forth his son in order that he may empower us through his spirit to be conformed to his image, right? I mean, this is... That's it. So that's how we conclude the book. We, we say that Paul's gospel is the gospel of divine sonship, right? First and foremost, it's about Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus is his son. God 
the father loves the world so much that, as you said, that's John, but Paul would put it, right? In the fullness of time, he sent his son, mm. born of a woman, born under the law, right? So it's all about Jesus, right? The gospel of divine sonship, the gospel of the divine son, Jesus. But then, right, through grace, we are then by grace what he is by nature, sons of God. And that's Paul's gospel. And that is, talk about good news, that actually by grace, we are made sons and daughters of God. And that's just not merely God changing the way he feels about us as if he has feelings or he can change. He doesn't change. It's we do. Right, we become sons and daughters, which means back to the purpose of predestination that we're being conformed to the image of the Son. So Paul's message is: this is God's Son, and we can all be sons in Him. Which is really good and news. That's great news. Saying that, right? Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic yeah, news. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. We can be in God's family. That's that's pretty super fantastic. Yeah. Right? You know, and uh, you know. And I think, and I think too, uh, you know, we have to kind of wrap it up here in a second, but, and I think too, I think, I, I think your book, you know, Paul, New Covenant Jew really helps because, you know, you guys even say it in the, in the book, you're not trying to go through every Pauline letter. You're not trying to go through every single historical critical That's argument right. that you're really just trying to lay out a, a solid hermeneutic to the, the, then approach the Pauline corpus in right. a, an authentically Catholic understanding, okay, we know this is a this is baseline Paul. We we have this idea now. Now let's approach his letters, knowing that they're written to particular people with particular needs, and not right. and not be intimidated. Well, he says this here, but he says this here is you know what's going on. But you no, know, we have this. Your book lays out this nice solid hermeneutic for Catholics to really approach Paul, hopefully without that fear and trembling that I think a lot of Catholics you know take to it. Yeah, and it's it, it, and that you know that's unfortunate as you mentioned. Because, the Catholics often have that. I think some of that is because, as you mentioned at the, in your intro, you know, that it's typical evangelical Protestant thing to have Paul in the back pocket kind of thing. It's like, well, they're going to quote Paul left, right, and center. But as a convert, I understand that from myself, a convert from evangelical Protestantism. And I get that. However, it's very important to note, you know, today's the Feast of St. Jerome, that the study of Scripture is our text as Catholics. And more than that, Paul is our apostle, right? Mm. So if you look at the tradition, and we say this in the beginning of the book, patristic and medieval, Peter's not the apostle. Right. It's Paul. Yeah. Because he's, and it's not that Peter has left in the Catholic tradition. I'm not suggesting Peter isn't the one given the keys and given the chair that also is then given to the successor. Peter has the most authority in the Catholic tradition. But Paul is the apostle in regards to the one sent, right? And the authoritative apostle in regards to the teaching, because the, the majority of the New Testament is written by Paul. And he's the apostle in as much as he's like the font, the source for so much of what we believe, such that then from Irenaeus through the Cappadocians all the way to Chrysostom and then Chrysostom to Augustine on to Aquinas, Paul is the apostle. And Catholics might be surprised to hear that because you might be thinking, well, when they say the apostle, not a apostle, you would think it's Peter, right? right? But it's not. Yeah. It's Paul. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it's for the kind of reasons I just was mentioning. It's like so much of what we hold about grace, sonship, adoption, deification, the Eucharist as the body of Christ, but that we become one body by eating it. That's so much of our faith just flows right from Paul. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, Dr. Kincaid, you know, this is awesome. You know, we'll have to 
you know, pick this conversation up again another time. But if, sure, if, I'd love to. Yeah, yeah, for everybody's listening, Paul, a new covenant Jew, rethinking Pauline theology. You can get it on, you know, Amazon. You know, anywhere that awesome Catholic theology books are sold. Um, and so I got mine on Amazon because that's just what I do. But uh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. it, it is quick. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. so make sure you're grabbing your copy, Paul, a new covenant Jew. I'll put a link uh, in the show notes that way you can read it. I really encourage everyone to read this book, pick up this book. It's fantastic, uh, Doctor Kincaid. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Chase. Always good to be with you. All right, y'all. Well, thank you so much again for joining me with Catholics with Bibles. Uh, we had a special guest on today, Dr. John Kincaid. Uh, really, I mean, really encourage you to pick up his book, Paul, a New Covenant Jew. Uh, as always, thank you for joining us. If you've liked this podcast, feel free to like, subscribe, leave a comment, leave a review, tell your friends, tell your family about it, and we'll see you next time on Catholics with Bibles. God bless y'all.